You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. This afternoon, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about a couple minutes is a lie, probably 35, just to set your expectations accurately. But I want to spend this time talking about the mentality with which we see life as followers of Jesus. Now, our mentality speaks to our outlook. It's the view with which you perceive everything that happens in your life. It's the set of your mind as you walk through day-to-day life. And having the correct mentality is very important because our mentality has a way of informing our expectations. It determines the the attitude and the action that you take in life. And so this afternoon, I specifically want to consider for just a few minutes the difference between two types of mentality. One would be a peacetime mentality, and the other would be a wartime mentality. So we don't, we don't have like a real sense of being at war in day-to-day life here in Salt Lake City right now. We're very blessed by that. Not everyone can say that everywhere in the world. So I just want you to imagine with me for a second the difference between a peacetime and a wartime mentality. And I think that we should be careful about militaristic language when it comes to our spirituality because of all that Jesus has to teach us in the Gospels about being peacemakers. But that being said... Uh, This metaphor of life with God, life in this world being a battle or being a war, is is a metaphor that comes up over and over again, both in the Old Testament and in the New. So it is appropriate language for us to use and to think about. And so think about the difference between peacetime and wartime mentality. A couple of examples. In a peacetime mentality, your guard is by definition down. There's no reason to be prepared for an attack. You're in a time of peace. But if you're in a wartime mentality, it's very, very different. Your guard is up because when a threat is evident, you have to be ready to protect yourself. In a peacetime mentality, relationships are anchored in affinity. You tend to just like hang out with people you like to hang out with. But in a wartime mentality, relationships are anchored in a common objective because you have a common enemy that is threatening you. In a peacetime mentality, you get to just sort of do what you want. You have nothing but freedom and so much opportunity for uh, whatever it is that that you want to do. But in wartime, you are directed by a mission at hand. And then lastly, in a peacetime mentality, you have all the time and space for almost endless leisure. But in a wartime mentality, you have a very clear task that you are called to accomplish. So clearly, the difference between these new mental- two mentalities is immense. And as we get ready to head into the holiday season together, there's a, a story that I think illustrates this for us. It's Christmas is almost here, which is insane. Um, but As a result of that, many of us are getting ready to watch what might be arguably the greatest Christmas movie of all time. So I want you to think about Home Alone for a second, okay? So think about, (laughs) that's the only time I've ever heard Nolan say anything during a sermon, was at the mention of Home Alone. So think about this story. At the beginning of this story, Kevin McAllister, he has no idea that he's in any danger. 
He thinks he's living his best life. All of the stress of his objectively awful family, some of the stuff, when you watch the first few minutes, you're like, this is the most dysfunctional family I have ever seen portrayed in a movie. And so he is living his best life. They're completely out of the picture. He is living it up. He's doing whatever he wants. But when he realizes that his home is under attack and that there's a threat, a very real danger, you know that his mentality instantly shifts. And he has that line right toward the end of that movie where he says, this is my house and I have to defend it. And so in this, all joking aside, in this story, we see both of these mentalities take place. We see him at peace and we see him at war. And here's why I bring this up today. I believe that the vast majority of Western Christians are living with the wrong mentality. Jesus said in John 16, 33, you will have suffering in this world. And then if we fast forward to the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul cautions Christians to put on the full armor of God to stand against the schemes of the enemy. See, so many of us live like we are at peace when the Bible says that we are at war. And so that leaves us, when we, when we have that mentality reversed, when we live like we are at peace, when we are actually very much in a day-to-day spiritual war for our souls, it leaves us vulnerable and exposed. And so here's the very simple big idea that I want to put before you and look at from a couple different places in uh, the, the letter of 1 Peter. Our big idea, if you're taking notes or writing stuff down, make a note of this. We can't expect peace when we are promised war. We can't expect peace when we are promised war. And I just want to be super, super clear because of this new wave of Christian nationalism that is coming up in our country. I'm not talking about that. If you want to know where, I I don't know where you all stand, I think that Christian nationalism is a demonic, disgusting distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm not talking about any of this like military language, please do not confuse it with that. That is something entirely different, which takes virtually every word of Jesus out of, his, out of context in everything that he said. But we are very much in the midst of, we have a very real enemy. Theologians for centuries have talked about the three great enemies of the soul, the devil, the world, and the flesh. All three of those war against the flourishing for which God made us. And so in that sense, we can't expect to be living in a time of peace when we have been promised war. And so as we head into this new season together as a church, which I very much believe is a giant step forward in a significant move of God in our community, as we head into that new season together where we are looking to see his kingdom come, opposition is going to come with it. Anytime Jesus' kingdom gains ground, there is an an opposing force that rises up against it. It's always been that way. It will always be that way until Jesus comes and decisively puts it to bed. And so the question that we want to wrestle with today is how can we be ready for that spiritual war? And so I want to look again at the book of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 4 specifically looking at verses 7 through 11. And I want to frame these few points in these verses as how to prepare for war. And so there's 
A few verses here. I've got four points. The first one is this. Guard your heart with vigilance. Guard your heart with vigilance. Now listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, so because that's true, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Now, just as a point of clarification, when Peter says the end of all things is near, it's important that we understand he is talking about the order of events. He's not talking about time. Because that would be confusing, right? Because he wrote this letter like 2,000 years ago. And you're like, in what universe is Peter living where 2,000 years later, this could still be considered near? It's because he's not talking about time. He's talking about the order of events. His his meaning is that the next big Jesus event is the return of Jesus. So we had the birth of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Each of those were massive Jesus events. Now we live in this age of the church, of disciples of Jesus gathering together in communities like ours, seeking to see his kingdom come slowly, but more and more in the context to which he's called us. And the next big Jesus event that will take place is Jesus' return when he will redeem all things, recreate a new heaven and a new earth that we will spend eternity at peace living with him. And so Peter is saying, because that is what's next, we are to be alert and sober-minded. Those two words just mean that we are to be mindful and aware. We are to pay attention to what is happening around us to pay attention to what is happening within us, to our response to to what it is that we are experiencing. So in a sense, it's like we're just constantly learning to ask a simple question. And that question is, how is this, whatever this is, whatever you experience in life, how is this affecting me? Now, this tends to come pretty naturally to us when it has to do with something physical. Like when we experience something physically, if you get injured, like we're pretty good at like, because of the acuteness of the pain of, of, of doing an assessment and figuring out what's going on, but we struggle with this emotionally and spiritually. So, like, think about the last time that you hit your head, okay? Everybody, I would assume, everyone has had that experience at some point. The last time I hit my head, it was I hit it on my trunk. It was down further than I anticipated. I stood up too quickly, smashed my head. My, my assumption is when we hit our head, we have a shared human experience. Two things happen. Number one, we all curse in some fashion, okay? Even if you're not the cursing kind, you hit your head, everybody learns how to swear all of a sudden, okay? So there's cursing of some kind, and then you immediately start to assess the damage. So you immediately are like, oh my goodness, is there a bump? Is there blood? If there's no bump, there's no blood, you just walk it off. Continue cursing till the pain goes away, and then you're good again, and you're a Christian. And then, if there's blood then you immediately are going to take action to care for that wound. Now, the problem is most of us don't have a process for assessing the emotional effect of life. And it is so important that we understand that such a significant part of what it means to be a human means that we are an inside-out people. And here's what I mean by that. We... Everything that comes out of us comes from within us, which is why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's because we are inside-out people. Everything that comes out of us comes from within us. 
which means we have to learn to really pay attention to the fruit that our life is producing and then learn how to track that back to where is that coming from. So maybe you're in a season of life where you are more restless than normal. Maybe you're feeling more irritable, more depressed. Maybe if you really think about it, you're like eating and drinking more than you typically do. Maybe you're watching more and just consuming more media. Maybe you're, like, your screen time is way up. I don't know about all phones, but I know like my iPhone every Sunday morning, I get that update with my screen time. I had like a 700% increase in my screen time two weeks ago. Now I know why. It's because Taylor Swift announced her next tour. And it's like DEFCON 5 in our house about these tickets. that go. They go on sale Tuesday. So that's all related. So here's like I pray for you every week. Do me a solid. Pray for me this week, because if we don't get these tickets, I'm going to have to find a new place to live. It's going to be that bad in our house, okay? So that's why my screen time was up. But maybe you're feeling less motivated right now. Maybe you're feeling less inspired. Maybe you feel less social. You just feel drawn back and wanting to isolate and to be alone. Now, all of that comes from something that is going on in your heart. And so we look at the fruit... We track it back to our heart, and then we take all of that to God in prayer, which is what Peter invites us to here. We take it to God in prayer, and we ask him for understanding. Lord, you've promised in James chapter 1 to give me wisdom when I ask in faith, so give me the wisdom to understand what is happening inside of me that is producing this on the outside of me. We ask him for strength and for courage to continue to trust him and to love him more. But what we don't do is ignore whatever it is that's happening in us. Because we are to be alert and sober-minded so that we can take whatever it is that is happening to God in prayer. We can't expect peace when we have been promised war. And so if we are going to be prepared for the spiritual battle that we all live in day to day, we have to learn to guard our hearts with vigilance. But that's not all. Here's the second point. Number two is maintain a united front. Maintain a united front. Listen to verse 8. Peter goes on, he says, Above all, if you have like an actual Bible in front of you, I would really recommend that you circle those two words. They're very important. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't know if you're paying attention, but like Peter is almost done with this letter. He has one more chapter to go. And if you have ever read the entirety of this letter, you know that it is just filled with uh, counsel. It's filled with commands. It's filled with invites. It's filled with wisdom and instruction, which makes it so significant that right here toward the end of the letter, it's like he shines this giant spotlight on verse 8, and he says, above all meaning of everything that I've said, this is the most important. If you do one thing, do this. And then he says, maintain constant love for one another. Now, if you don't know the context of this letter, Peter's writing to a collection of churches that were experiencing severe persecution. They were living in a very dark time. It was very hard to be a follower of Jesus in their culture and in their context. Their lives were in danger as a result of it. 
And so here's why I think it's so, here's why my, my theory on why he says this is the most important thing. Above everything else, this is the one. The reason is stress invites strife. Think about the way that you tend to respond and the way that you get in relationship when you're stressed. We tend to have far more conflict with one another when we're stressed. We tend to be way more easily triggered by one another when we're stressed. For instance, I came home one night this week. I was very tired. I had had been fighting a headache all day long. I was feeling pretty overwhelmed. And I got frustrated with one of my sons, which is not super outside the norm. But I responded to something that was happening in a way that was harsh. And the problem with that is that 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is patient, that love is kind, that it is not rude or irritable. And so my response toward my son failed on at least those four counts. And so as a result, the next morning, I had to take him aside and apologize for not speaking to him in a loving way. But I use that as an example to illustrate that when we experience stress, we tend to see an increase of strife in our relationships. And so this church is in a time that is very stressful. Our church is in a time that is very stressful. We live stressful lives. We live in a stressful world. We're in the midst of change and transition, which is very, very stressful. And as a result, it's a lot easier to be like real short or mean or rude or harsh or inconsiderate to one another. And so as a result, Peter says, maintain constant love. See, the reality is the longer that we live in community with one another, the more we're going to test one another. If you're brand new, like it's great to be brand new sometimes. Like it's like a first date. Everybody's on their best behavior. Like if your first date sucks, like if you can't hold in your crazy for one date, get some help. But the longer we're in relationship with one another, the more that we test one another. We don't always get our preference. We get pushed outside of our comfort zone. Sometimes, admittedly, we, we sin against one another. And love is what covers this. The reality is there is no sustained community without sacrificial love. It's not a thing. And so we are up against way too much in this world. And there is way too much at stake for us to turn on one another. So we are called to maintain constant love. We can't expect peace when we have been promised war. So let's maintain a united front. Now thirdly, Peter commands us to welcome one another. Peter commands us to welcome one another. Look at verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. So he's like, be welcoming to one another and like in a real way. Don't fake it. Don't be like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And then be like, I hate these people. I can't believe they're here. Biblical hospitality, in its essence, is about welcome. And welcome means conveying this sense to one another that says, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. So when we have people into our homes, we want to convey a sense of like, man, we're so glad you're here. We have planned for you. We want to make you feel valued. We want you to feel safe and seen. We want you to feel loved. So we do that in our homes, but we also do that as a community, as a church as well. When we gather together on Sundays like this, when we gather together for prayer meetings or anything else that might go on in the context of community. 
And there are two big things that can really stand in the way of being welcoming to one another, our attitudes and our actions. Like the reality is our attitude sometimes is like, I, I really don't care if you feel welcome. That we very much can get into that mode. Or sometimes we only welcome people who are just like us, which doesn't work when we look at the incredible diversity of people that Jesus welcomed into relationship with him. That's one of my favorite things about our church, by the way, is when you look around this room, we're not one of those churches where everyone looks the same. We're like 50 shades of weird in this church. Everybody's weird, me too, I'm leading the parade, just in our own ways. But there is great diversity, but we welcome one another in the midst of it. But our actions can get in the way as well. And this can happen just through simple things like sometimes we just aren't very considerate of one another. Or considerate of, in the context of like a gathering like this, considerate of new people who are coming in. You've probably had an experience where you went into someone's home and something happened that didn't make you feel welcome because it wasn't very considerate. I remember years ago, I think it was Tammy and Tyler and I went to dinner at someone's house and uh, we walked in and immediately I was just like, I just don't feel super comfortable for some reason. And we walk into, they're like, come on into the kitchen. We almost have dinner ready. And I walk in, and I kid you not, there were two cats on the counter, climbing over the food, onto the stove, over the pans that the food was literally cooking in. And I just remember thinking, I'm never coming here again. Doesn't mean I won't have dinner with you, but we're going out. I'm never eating here again. That is so, so just as like, this is a just free pastoral advice. You have people over, keep your cats off the counter because it's nasty. We have different degrees of comfort with animals, I know, but as a general rule, keep them out of your food that you're getting ready to serve guests. So that is an absurd example that actually happened. I'm not making that up. But it is an example of like sometimes we're just not very considerate of one another. And so what this really means is that we, we need some shared behaviors that we commit to so that we can be a welcoming place to people who come, people who already call this place home, but then also people who are going to be new and to come into our community as well. So here's what I know. Every house, every home has house rules. Like maybe you're, like raise your hand if you're, you're a shoes-on house. Like people wear shoes in the house, on the carpet all the time. Ew, okay, that's fine. And then raise your hand if you are a uh, cats-on-the-counter kind of house. And no, I'm just kidding. Hopefully... You've all been far too shamed to raise your hand on that one. So shoes off, people. It seems like based on hands, more shoes off. What are the rest of you floating through your house? Like half the room didn't, didn't commit to either. They're like, there's, I don't want to even say anything at this point. Yeah, all, right, you just, all right, here we go. So listen, here's, here's going to be so that we can really be a welcoming environment. Here's three simple house rules for us, okay? Three, three formation house rules. Number one, we welcome wounds. We welcome wounds. If you have been with us for any amount of time, you have probably heard some version of this message because it is very core to who we are. Jesus welcomed wounded people. Religion creates an environment where people have to perform to be accepted. Jesus was not like that. The church is not meant to be like that. And so as a community, we have worked very, very hard to create a vulnerable, honest culture where we are open about what we have been through, the hurts that we have experienced, 
the pain and the brokenness that we live with as a result that we are trying to heal through. But in our church, all of that is welcomed into the open. This is not a place to hide. This is a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus and one another. And so as a result, we welcome wounded people. Now, to be clear, sometimes when, when a person has not pursued healing in the midst of their wounds, they become a wounder of other people. So maybe you've heard the cliche, hurt people, hurt people. It's a cliche, but it's super true. And so I do want to be clear that this is not a place for people to come in wounded, to be unwilling to pursue healing, and as a result, to habitually hurt other people as a result. We're not a safe place for that. When that has happened in the past, because it has at times, we have addressed it, and when there is an unwillingness to repair the wound that has been created, those people just don't stay in our community. They don't like, we don't like, we're not the mafia, we don't like off them and bury them in a swamp or anything like that. came out kind of (laughs) weird. They just have a way of disappearing, is all I'm saying. (laughs) My point is we welcome wounds. Number two, (laughs) number two, and this is aspirational for us, all right? We are allergic to people sitting alone. We are allergic to people sitting alone. We have new people in the room tonight. Uh, We will continue to have more and more new people as we continue to grow. And if you can please fight to hang on to the anxiety and the awkwardness of attending a church for the first time, don't ever lose a sense of how that feels. I've been a pastor for a very long time. I abhor visiting new churches. It's just very anxiety-provoking. And sometimes people come in. I remember there was a church, the first church that I attended in Chicago. I attended for three months, and no one ever said hi to me. Three months. And I was like a church kid. I wasn't hiding out in the back. I was showing up, like walking right by. Like There's greeters everywhere, and not at one point did anyone say hi. And that just like... That's one shared value that Pastor Tyler and I have had since the day we started being, uh, serving in ministry together. We really never want that to happen. So if you ever see someone sitting alone, you don't have to be creepy and weird about it, but just like say hello, introduce yourself, ask a person's name, tell them, I'm really glad that you're here. The good news is in the tiny house church that we're getting ready to move into, it's going to be real hard to sit alone. But it, during our, our time, like if people are connecting and milling about and you see someone off by themselves, man, just pay attention to that because we want to be allergic to people sitting alone. And then lastly, we create space for connection. And I want to talk about this specifically in the context of our time together on Sunday mornings. Um, we are saying that our service begins at 10 a.m. And really what we've built in is about a 20-minute buffer for people to be able to connect with one another. So at 10 a.m., we're ready to go. We'll have coffee and donuts. We have a great connection space for people to be able to hang out upstairs and downstairs at the ministry center. Gives you an opportunity to get your kids checked in, to get settled, and then we'll actually have a call to worship and we'll sing and all of that. We'll start around 10.25, something like that. Now, I say that because some of you are wired in a way where you're like, oh, okay, so service starts at 10.25, so I'll be there at 10.25, which is fine. Um, but we really want to create space for connection. That is a time for us to welcome one another. Like, it's not even just a new people's thing. Like, some, some of, we have a, a, a 
very high percentage of single adults in our church. We love and value singleness. The Apostle Paul said it's a spiritual gift, so we don't create this weird environment where, like, to be really holy is to be married. And that's just not true. I've no, I do way too much marital counseling with people to know that's a big lie, okay? <laughs> We're all miserable in our own way. That, that's the honest-to-God truth, okay? And that's not true. I'm very happily married. And sometimes it's hard. That's all I'm saying. This is going the mafia route again. What is happening? <laughs> I don't even remember what I, oh yeah, single people. That's a good, like, there are, I have interacted with single people in our church <clears throat> and, and throughout ministry over the years where I have had people tell me one of my favorite things about coming on Sunday, it's the only time all week anyone hugs me. It's the only time all week I experience any amount of human touch. That's a big deal and a very important sustaining factor for a healthy person human to exist. And so that connection time, I would argue, is just as important as our singing, is just as important as a message, is just as important as communion or anything else that we do. It is a vital element in the totality that makes up our services on Sunday. And so let's really create a space to be able to connect with one another. Again, we can't expect peace when we're promised war. And so if we're going to be prepared for this battle that we're in, we have to welcome one another. And then finally, number four, is employ your gifts. Employ your gifts. Look with me at verse 10. Peter goes on, he says, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others, as good stewards of the, very grace, the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, two things are established in these two verses. The first is <clears throat> every Christian receives at least one spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit by grace when they put their faith in Jesus. Now, if you're not familiar with the spiritual gifts, there are a handful of places in the New Testament where we see some foundational lists of examples of spiritual gifts. So if you read Romans chapter 12, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or Ephesians 4, those are three places where we see a list of spiritual gifts. Those lists are not exhaustive, but they do provide us with a helpful foundation. And they teach us that every Christian receives a gift from the Holy Spirit. Now, secondly, we also learn that those gifts exist for the good of the church. It isn't just you about you feeling good, although that is a byproduct of you using our spiritual gifts for sure, but it's about continuing to be edifying to the church that we call home. And so when you use your spiritual gift, we are built up. And when you don't use your gift, we are negatively impacted. Now, the challenge is, I think many of us don't know what our spiritual gift is. And so as a result of that, <clears throat> here's a, just a little bit of advice on how to discern that. The first thing is to, again, look through those lists. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. There is an, an immense amount of resource on the internet now uh, about spiritual gifts. Some, it's not all equal in quality, but if you sift through it, you can find some really, really good stuff. So get familiar with what some of those spiritual gifts are. As you become familiar with them, the first thing to look for is what resonates with me. 
Like I, I remember in my early 20s, I really started to have this compulsion to want to teach people in a way that would help them increase their worship of God. That gift of teaching really resonated with me. So the th next thing that you're looking for is affirmation from other people, where people are affirming, hey, when you do that, that's, that, is a, that was a real blessing to me. And so I was, when I was in my early 20s, I was given an opportunity in the student ministry that I was serving to teach, and then I got affirmation afterwards. Hey, that wasn't awful, was pretty much as good as the affirmation was, but it wasn't a please don't ever come here and do that again. So we want resonance, we want affirmation. A third thing we're looking for is fruitfulness, that it is producing fruit in you, and it's producing fruit in others. And then lastly, is to just experiment, try some things, like Practice hospitality in your home. If people come home and there's cats everywhere, maybe that's not your gift. You have one. But if your cat's on the counter thing, it just may not be hospitality, and that's okay. So just experiment and try some things. And when in doubt, just begin to serve Jesus and serve people and trust that the Spirit is going to guide you into whatever it is that he has gifted you for. Now, here's what doesn't work in the Christian life. What doesn't work is a pattern of consumption without contribution. That does not work. We are given gifts in order to serve the church. So imagine with me for a second that I gave my youngest son, Lincoln, who is 10 now. Imagine I gave him $100, but not as a Christmas gift, not as a birthday gift, not like just because I love you gift. But I gave it to him, and I said, hey, buddy, I want you to take this, and I want you to use this to bless somebody else. Now, imagine that instead of doing that, he goes, I don't know if he calls an Uber or how it happens. That's where the illustration breaks down. But let's say he goes straight to the Lego store, doesn't buy anything for anybody else, but just buys himself yet another Lego set, which, by the way, already covers the entirety of his bedroom floor. It's like a minefield trying to get to his bed to say goodnight to him. So imagine he takes that, I gave him clear instruction, hey, use this to bless one of your friends. He's like, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to not do that, and goes to the Lego store and buys himself more Lego. That would be very disappointing to me as the person who gave him that gift to bless someone else, because it defies the purpose of the gift. And that is exactly what we do when we do not serve with the gifts that the Spirit of God has given us. And so let's discern what our gifts are, and let's employ them for the good of the church. And in the meantime, find any way possible to just be able to serve. We cannot expect peace when war is promised. And if we're going to be ready for the spiritual war that we are already in, we have to learn as a community to employ the gifts that God has given us. Now, in closing, if, if I were to guess at why I think sometimes we are resistant to living into this wartime mentality, I'd put, especially in our culture, I'd put almost all my money on weariness. That there is this weary, soul weariness in us that makes us resistant to want to live into this wartime mentality. Because the reality is, life is very hard. In more ways then we could even take time to list right now. Life is very hard, and as a result, our souls get very weary. 
And the reality is it's just simply easier to distract ourselves through life rather than to give ourselves to the fight that is necessary for us to actually flourish the way that Jesus desires for us. And I was having a conversation with uh, another member of our community here at Formation this week, and uh, we were talking about this kind of wartime mentality, and he was telling me a little bit about the Roman military and how they functioned as they rose to power at the real height of the Roman Empire. And I didn't know some of this, but do you know that their soldiers, on average, marched 24 miles a day, every day, carrying uh, a minimum of about 60 pounds on their back in addition to their weapons. So 24 miles with that, every, like just imagine that. Like when we go to Disney World, I think we average between 15 and 17 miles a day. I'm, I, I get to, uh, to bed that and I feel like I'm never going to be able to walk again. Like, and they're 24 miles a day, not paved. There isn't like music and sugar being pumped into the air to keep them going. It's just straight hiking through the sand, carrying a 60-pound pack. And do you know that at the end of every single day, after a 24-mile march, they would build a fortress wherever they were every night before they could go to sleep? 24-mile hike, then we're going to start cutting down trees so that we can build a fortress. And all of that was constructed to fortify their safety while they were resting. So just imagine how weary they would have been at the end of the day, physically, mentally, emotionally. And what if in that weariness they thought, you know what, we're tired, let's just skip the fortress part today. The problem is, to skip the fortress was to wake up to slaughter. The fortress is what kept them safe as they rested, so they could replenish in this weary state that they were in. And so here's how that applies to us. These four ways that we've talked about this afternoon, these four ways that we prepare for this war are how we build our fortress. To neglect those is to open ourselves to spiritual threat, to not be vigilant in our care for our own hearts, to not love one another and maintain a united front, to not welcome one another, to not use our gifts, all of that leaves us vulnerable as a community to spiritual threat. And I want you to hear that in the midst of your weariness, we don't combat weariness by drawing back from community. God has given us ways to replenish in seasons of weariness, but withdrawing from community is never one of them. Instead, we learn to Sabbath. We learn to pray. We learn to meditate on Scripture in a way that is meaningful and actually the Spirit of God speaks to us through it. We connect deeply and meaningfully with other people. And as we lean into those practices, our strength and our energy is replenished. But if we draw back from community, if we draw back from Jesus, if we draw back from one another and we just go into like this mode of living that is all about being distracted from how tired we are, it just further depletes us. We can't expect peace when we are promised war. And so the question is, will we adopt a wartime mentality? 
Will we be vigilant in the care of our hearts? Will we maintain a united front? Will we welcome one another? Will we employ our gifts? None of that is possible without the sustaining and empowering grace of Jesus. And so let's pray that he would help us to adopt all that he has invited us to. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you again for this time. And I thank you for these people. I thank you that we have you. I thank you that we have one another. And Lord, it is our desire to follow you, but not to do that in isolation, to not just do that as individuals, but to do that as a community. And the reality is, we need your help for all of this. None of this is possible by our own strength. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to guard our hearts with vigilance. I pray that you would help us to maintain constant love for one another so that we can maintain a united front. Lord, I pray that you would help us to welcome one another, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's awkward, even when it's hard. Lord, we want to convey your heart to one another, to every person who will ever step into one of our gatherings or experiences our church in any way. We want to welcome one another. And we want to be able to employ the gifts that you have entrusted to us. So would you help us to have awareness of what you have gifted us with and what you have gifted us for. And Lord, I just want to pray, lastly, for anyone that is just in a season where their soul feels weary. Lord, weariness is very understandable in the world that we live in. But we thank you that you promise us in the book of Isaiah, that you promise that if we wait on you, you will renew our strength. And so Lord, I pray that we would wait on you and that we would do that in and as a community, not in isolation, not just binging more Netflix, not just eating and drinking ourselves into oblivion, but that we would wait on you and trust you to replenish our strength. And I pray that you would replenish the strength of we as a community as well. It has been a hard few years. But Lord, we sense you breathing new life into our midst. And so we pray that you would do that more and more. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name.